Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I am your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her brilliant new book, Beginnings of Islamic Law, Late Antique Islamicate Legal Traditions, Lina Saleme, Associate Professor of Law at Tel Aviv University, presents a fascinating account of the historical unfolding of Islamic law that combines dazzling textual analysis with cutting-edge theoretical interventions. Beginnings of Islamic law makes a formidable and eminently convincing case for a carefully historicized approach to the study of Islamic law while arguing for the intimate entanglement of law and history. Another hallmark of this book is its focus on putting Islamic legal traditions in conversation with Jewish law in singularly productive ways. Through a historically grounded and theoretically sophisticated comparison of Islamic and Jewish law on specific questions of ethics and practice, such as women-initiated divorce, treatment of prisoners of war, and circumcision, this book highlights important and often surprising points of overlap and divergence. In our conversation, we talked about the major themes, arguments, and possible misinterpretations of the book. Beginnings of Islamic law will be of great interest to all students of Islam, Islamic law, Jewish law, legal studies, and the study of religion more broadly. It should also make an excellent text for courses on these subjects. Here now is a conversation on the beginnings of Islamic law. Hello, Lena. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, Very good, Lena. Thank you so much for your time and for uh, being on the New Books in Islamic Studies. It was an absolute pleasure uh, to read your book and learn from it. Uh, This really... uh, promises to be a path-paving book in uh, so many ways. So very excited about uh, this conversation. Uh, we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Could you share with our listeners a bit, uh, Lina, about how you became a scholar 
of Islam and and law and then perhaps how you came to write this book. Well, first, thanks for having me on the show. I actually listen to the New Books Network pretty regularly. And this is the question that I thought about the most in thinking about this interview, because as you know from reading the book, I'm very concerned with identity politics and with issues of how scholarship in Islamic studies gets judged and determined as being good or uh, path-breaking or not path-breaking. And it concerns me, actually, that in many contexts, where you went to school or who published your book or who you studied with becomes the factors that then determine the quality of the book. So from my own perspective, I'd actually like to say, you know, we don't need to talk about that. Let's just talk about the book instead of talking about all of the other things that are really about judging the book by its cover in figurative ways. Okay. So uh, let's begin with a broader uh, question that has to do with the the kinds of uh, approaches to Islamic law that you critique in this book. Uh, You particularly uh, launch a critique on what you call an origins-driven or a developmental linear approach uh, to the study of Islamic law. So could you explain uh, to our listeners what are the problems that you see with uh, what you call this origins-driven approach to the study of Islamic law, and then what kind of uh, methodological alternatives do you present in this book? So there are several problems, and I actually dedicate three different chapters to three different aspects of the origins problem. And the first chapter talks about origins as it relates to the notion of an original text. And there, the critique is about the ways in which textual criticism, as one particular form of source criticism, dominates the methodological landscape of Islamic studies. And as a result, it structures historiography in a way as being a search for truth with a capital T rather than a search for historical truth with a lowercase t. So that's basically the first chapter. And the third chapter uh, deals with origins as it refers to the search for authenticity. And so that's the chapter where I talk about the kind of search for the parentage of Islamic law, and I discuss the ways in which scholars have been interested in trying to understand the parentage of Islamic law through Jewish law or through Roman law. And uh, as a result, the historiographical approach is about derivation and kind of a family tree model that you would see sort of that is kind of, I think this somewhat influenced by comparative philology. And then in the fifth chapter, I talk about origins as it relates to linear development and the notion of progress in history, as well as uh, orthodox narratives of history. So in that context, uh, I talk about the ways in which origins is related to periodization. So the formative and classical have to do with origins uh, theories about history. And those are actually also related to orthodox narratives about legal history. So that classical is actually not a scholarly category, but really an orthodox one. So those are basically the three general ways in which I talk about origins in the book and identify problems with the origins uh, methodology. And as an alternative, I actually don't present what I think is a clear, rigid methodological alternative, because that's actually precisely the point, is that there is no one methodology. Instead, what I encourage uh, people to do is to look at all the sources that are available and to read them critically. And what that will actually mean for each scholar really depends on the sources that they're using, the kind of research question they're asking. And the case studies that I present in chapters two, four, and six attempt to do just that, which is show the diversity of ways in which you can use sources 
the Islamic historical sources and to think about history outside of the origins paradigm, but not necessarily in a pre-scripted kind of way. And uh, that's what historical research, I think, is about. Now, one of the main hallmarks of this book is that it takes very seriously uh, the idea of comparison and a comparison, especially in the context of this book between Islamic and Jewish law is, is central to the concerns of this book. So could you tell us a bit about how you approach uh, the idea of comparison and in what ways does the comparison of Islamic and Jewish law advance the main argument of this book? Right. So one of the main points in the book is that I am against comparison for the sake of comparison, because there's a way in which, again, going back to your first question, there's a lot of identity politics interest in the question of the relationship between Islamic law and Jewish law. But the identity politics motivation for asking that question is not scholar, is not a rigorous scholarly method, right? So much of what I talk about is applying rigorous heuristics to the study of Jewish and Islamic legal traditions. And that means comparisons that are historical and that are measured. So the typical way in which Jewish law and Islamic law tend to be compared is by saying something like, oh, they have similar scriptural sources, right? So the Torah is like the Quran and making that kind of comparison in terms of the sources or making kinds of comparisons between uh, forms of legal reasoning. But what I try to do is actually think more historically in terms of locating Islamic law and Jewish law within particular historical time periods and spaces and asking questions about both legal systems that can then be explored through the historical materials. So that's kind of basically the way I think about it is comparison, not for the sake of comparison and Mm -hmm. comparison driven by a kind of rigorous historical method. Why do you find commonly raised objections on the uh, reliability of uh, medieval and late antique sources misplaced? That's also a conversation that came up earlier in your book. Uh, Could you uh, talk a bit about that? Right, because the issue of Islamic historical sources is such a prevalent topic within Islamic studies. And it's something that anyone who does training in the field of Islamic studies is faced with as an issue. Like, how do you read your sources or what what are you going to do with the sources? And so... That's why there's a lot of attention paid to the issue in the book. And basically, I argue that many of the common ideas about Islamic historical sources, late antique and medieval specifically, are actually inconsistent, illogical, and to a large extent prejudicial. And there are basically four primary issues that I talk about. The first one is about the nature of the sources, meaning narrative versus documentary sources. And I critique the ways in which the field has structured documentary sources as being more reliable than narrative sources and also has structured narrative sources as being needing some kind of purification process in order to be used. The second issue is oral composition and transmission. And I discuss the kind of prejudicial ways in which uh, there are assumptions about oral composition and transmission as being different or inferior to written composition and transmission. And the third issue is variations or multiple reports. So we see this when we talk about tradition reports, a hadith, for example, where there are multiple versions of the same historical event. And this is understood, I think, falsely by scholars as being a sign of weakness or a sign of unreliability in the sources. And I talk about the ways in which from the perspective of philosophy historiography, that's simply unfounded. And then the fourth issue is historical distance. And that's the idea of there being some historical distance between the events that took place in history and their recording. And the assumption that sources that record historical events at a later that happened 
prior to the recording are somehow less reliable is, is also deeply problematic. So those are basically the four issues that are discussed in primarily in chapter one of the book. And I talk about the ways in which uh, those assumptions are actually not founded on basic logical assumptions. Now let us shift our focus to some of the major themes that you uh, discuss in your book. And one of the things that I found really instructive and fascinating is the way you show uh, uh, there were some overlaps, but also some important divergences between Islamic and Jewish law when it came to uh, their engagement with uh, the domains of ritual law, international law, and so on. Uh, so could you tell us a bit about some of these major proximities as well as distances between Islamic and Jewish law uh, in their engagement with crucial ethical questions in uh, uh, the domains of, for example, ritual and international law? Yes. So this goes back again to the question about the how do you do the comparison. And so one of the major objectives in the book is to think more specifically about comparing or identifying specific areas of law within the Jewish and the Islamic legal traditions. So rather than thinking holistically about the traditions and trying to then compare them to actually think about specific case studies or areas of law. And so I present three case studies within the book. The first one is on prisoners of war. And in that one, I demonstrate that the fact that Islamic law was always enmeshed historically within a state means that it's actually very different in terms of this international law from Jewish law. And in the second case study, which is chapter four on circumcision, I point out that even though circumcision is both a Jewish and an Islamic practice, and that it might then seem quite comparable, it actually has significantly different meanings in the two traditions. And the third case study, which is chapter six, is on wife-initiated divorce. And in that chapter, I illustrate that family law is actually very intertwined with sociopolitical economic conditions, so that in that specific case study, we can actually see shifts in legal practice across the boundaries of legal traditions. And so you can see Jewish law and Islamic law shifting in terms of practice because of the nature of that particular area of law. Now let's uh, perhaps uh, elaborate a bit further this uh, uh, final uh, case study that you uh, brought in terms of the uh, women-initiated uh, divorce. And one of the major conceptual points that I found very useful in this book that you make uh, very convincingly is to take seriously the uh, entanglement of law and history. Could you st- uh, talk a bit about how your examination of uh, Islamic and Jewish laws on uh, women-initiated divorce uh, establish this intimacy of law and history, uh, how this case study amplifies this core argument uh, of the book on the interaction of law and history. Yeah, it, it definitely is a significant argument in the book that law is a historically situated phenomenon. And in the specific chapter on wife-initiated divorce, what I focus on understanding is the ways in which law changes over time within a particular legal tradition and how that then relates to a particular historical and sociopolitical space. And in that chapter, uh, I contrasted late antique and medieval wife-initiated divorce with the objective being to show that in the late antique period, the return of the dower payment was itself a form of affecting a divorce. And in the medieval era, this changed because that particular act of returning the dower amount, that is the wife returning the dower amount to the husband, no longer affected a divorce in the same way because of a variety of sociopolitical and economic conditions that had changed between the late antique and the medieval era. But overall, in the entire book, uh, it's one of the things I say actually in the introduction that you might recall is that we actually need to begin with a definition of law rather than with a definition of Islamic. And so 
it's clearly a theme in the book to argue that law is always historically situated. And each one of the case studies actually demonstrates the same point in different ways. So in the first case study on the prisoners of war, you see that there's a shift in the prohibition of the execution of war prisoners between the late antique and medieval period. So again, the question of what Islamic law is or what Jewish law is, if you wanted to ask that one as well, is always one that, can, that has to be historically situated. So rather than saying, what is Islamic law on X, we need to ask, what was Islamic law on X in a Y time period, right? So that it's actually, we need to be thinking about late antiquity or the medieval era, the early modern era, modern era, and thinking more specifically about how these transformations happen. And obviously this is an important methodological point, but also a, a kind of a theoretical point about the ways in which law changes and how important it is to understand the orientalist stereotype of Islamic law as being static is really just unfounded historically. So let me take a step back from these uh, specific themes by asking you a broader question, uh, which is, Lena, what do you see as the major interventions and revisions uh, that you see this book making in the study of Islam and Islamic law? That's a harder question because I have no idea if or how the book can intervene in Islamic studies or even in Islamic legal studies more specifically. I really think that the audience will determine that matter. I can say from my own perspective that I would be very happy if my book manages to encourage more diversity and more critical theoretical engagement within the fields themselves. And I actually was thinking that given your position as host of the show, you would have a better sense of this about how my book intervenes in the field because you do all the reading and you meet with so many people. And you maybe have a better perspective on that than I do. Well, let me ask a slightly different question uh, in that regard. And uh, I mean, feel free to uh, uh, think over it. I, I was thinking this is such an interesting and provocative book, which takes on so much of the current wisdom uh, when it comes to the field of Islamic law. Uh, could you think of, Lena, maybe one or two major misreadings that you anticipate of this book and uh, how you might respond to those possible misreadings? That's a great question, because in my experience, there's a lot of misreadings. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the major misreadings that I've gotten in my own experience is that people will say to me, yes, everything you're saying has been said already, and it's been said by X. And usually X, the person that they name, is someone that I've actually criticized in my footnotes. And I don't mean criticized as a person, but whose work I right. criticized. Right. And I find this very interesting, because I think that... It suggests to me that they're not fully understanding the depth of the critique. Uh, that's been my own experience. I could be wrong about that, of course. But uh, I think that the misreadings have to do with thinking, for example, that if you just take out the word origins and put in beginnings, that that solves the problem. But that's actually not the issue, right? And it it has to do with the interaction between form and substance. So it's not the case that what I'm saying is just, you know, change the terms and then you solve the problem. But I'm actually talking about a much deeper conceptual and methodological problem. So when I say origins, it's really about the idea that there is an original point in history, that there's an original text. All of these assumptions actually have reverberations in the way you think about history. So definitely this kind of notion that you can just change the terms and then everything that I'm saying is unnecessary is uh, is a problem, one that I've already experienced. I would say that the other issue has to do with the assumption that this is apologetics or the assumption that somehow you're just defending the tradition or something like that. And I, I think it's really important to understand that the book is about an application of really rigorous critical theory mm -hmm. to a field that is mainly positivist in its orientation. And 
if you, you know, you want to be a positive, it's just fine. I'm presenting a critique of it that I think has implications for knowledge production. So it's not about labeling. And so this is also related to the first question you asked me, because it's very often the case in the field that people think that the use of the term Orientalist has to do with the identity of the scholar rather than the power position. And so it's really important for me that people understand that the critique that I'm making here is about the methodologies, not about individuals. It's really about the way of thinking. And so that can be applied to anyone, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it has nothing to do with who you are. It has everything to do with how you're thinking about these sources and how you're thinking about Islamic law and legal history. So as we are drawing uh, to the end of our conversation, Lena, could you uh, share with us what's the next project? What uh, are you planning on working on next? Well, there are several projects that are sort of coming out around right now that are relevant. Uh, one is a piece I just published in Islamic Law and Society on the way in which the charity tax was a form of constituting Muslim identity in late antiquity. And that really draws upon a lot of the kind of groundwork that I laid in this book. What's relevant actually to one of your previous questions about the wife-initiated divorce is a piece that should come out soon on um, imperialist feminism Mm -hmm. and Islamic law that does a feminist, critical feminist uh, reading of the ways in which Contemporary scholarship has looked at questions of women in Islamic law. Uh, but beyond that, I'm, I'm working on larger projects about the secularization of Islamic law in the modern world and what secular legal reasoning means and how that differs from Islamic legal reasoning, as well as uh, some projects on materiality and the way in which materiality shaped Islamic legal history. The Beginnings of Islamic Law, Late Antique Islamic Legal Traditions by Lina Saleme, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in uh, 2016. Uh, thank you so much, Lina, for uh, this uh, wonderful book, which I'm sure will spark uh, multiple conversations. And uh, thank you so much for your conversation today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our show today. I hope uh, you enjoyed our conversation. And please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.